This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In Britain, as one of the kind of most affluent countries in the world, if we can't protect our own species, then what does that say about the rest of the world? Um, It's really disheartening. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, and this week we're investigating long-extinct animals. No, not dinosaurs, they get plenty of coverage enough already. Instead, we're going to look at creatures that lived in the Pleistocene era, a period of time that covered the last known Ice Age. During this period, enormous creatures roamed the Earth, with some surprising animals making what we now know as the British Isles their home. What makes these often enormous animals so interesting is that they lived side by side with humans and other early human species, which means we have more than just fossilised bone fragments to learn from. We have cave art, sculpture, tools and even cooking utensils that we can use to build our understanding. Ross Barnett is a paleontologist whose recent book, The Missing Links, explores the story of Britain's lost megafauna. He spoke to our online assistant, Sarah Rigby, about Britain's biggest beasts, humans' role in their extinction, and what they can teach us about the future of conservation. So first of all, can you please give us a brief description of what your book is about? Uh, So The Missing Links is a bit about uh, what's happened kind of over the past 50,000 years it's focusing on Britain as a kind of microcosm, but hopefully kind of bringing in some of the wider ideas about what has changed and what we've lost um, since the end of the Ice Age in Europe and the world, essentially. So you talk a lot about um, m- large mammals, megafauna, um, particularly from the Pleistocene era. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the, the Pleistocene is basically the, the kind of more uh, fancy term for the Ice Age. What we know is the Ice Age is... Uh, mostly the Pleistocene, which is this kind of period from about two and a half million years ago till only about 
11,700 years ago. So it's the most, the second most recent geological time period. Can you give a bit of context for the Pleistocene, please, in terms of human history? Sure. Well, the Pleistocene is basically when everything happens for, for modern humans, for our species, uh, Homo sapiens. Um, but it's a time where we have still other species of of of, uh, of humans around. So it's when the Neanderthals are around. It's when the, the Hobbit of Flores is around. Um, it's when you have the Denisovans, this weird, mysterious um, sort of central Eurasian uh, group that nobody knows much about, but we know we interbred with. Uh, and it's also the start of our own species. So we, we kind of evolved in Africa uh, two to 300,000 years ago, uh, which is the, towards the end of the Pleistocene. And then starting at about 60 to 70,000 years ago, modern humans spread out of Africa and basically conquer the entire planet from, you know, all the, cover all the continents except Antarctica and all the major island groups as well. So it's a really kind of dynamic time for, for hominids as a whole. So when people think of extinct prehistoric animals, most people would probably first think of dinosaurs. So why should we be interested in um, these much more recent animals? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, you know, dinosaurs are very much the kind of uh, the gateway to to um, being interested in the life of the past for sure. I mean, that's that's what I started off being interested in as a as a child, um, and you know, I, I still love dinosaurs. But I think what makes uh, the Pleistocene megafauna so much more interesting is just the fact that you know we live with them. So unlike the dinosaurs, if we discount birds, which are dinosaurs, but the the kind of non-avian dinosaurs, they lived sixty six million years ago before humans, before primates, before really most modern mammal groups. But the the giants of the Ice Age, the, the kind of Pleistocene megafauna, the mammoths, the woolly rhinos, the saber-toothed cats, uh, the giant wombats, the, the ground sloths, all these kind of crazy animals that are only just gone, we lived and interacted with them. And we have lots of evidence of, of how humans uh, hunted, used their, their kind of uh, fur and tusk and all these other kind of products that they had. Um, and so we've, we've kind of only just missed them. They're, they're kind of just yesterday in geological time. Uh, and we, we kind of saw them, we drew them, we, we uh, sculpted them. They're a very intimate part of the human story that we don't really think about very much because they're not around anymore. In terms of what lives in Britain, um, we would usually think of the mammals that we have as things like, you know, badgers and deer and, you know, generally quite small things. But that wasn't always the case, was it? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're really kind of, we're dealing with what is a, a very artificial situation in Britain that uh, we don't have any large carnivores. We don't have anything bigger than a badger, which is essentially, you know, a really small carnivore that, that occasionally scavenges and, and ha takes small mammals. But if we go back, say, 20,000 years ago, we had lions, we had saber-toothed cats. Of course, we had, you know, wolves and bears and lynx, these other species that went extinct slightly more recently. Uh, we had a whole heap of things. Hyenas. I mean, who thinks of hyenas as being native to Britain? But they are. So where did they go? Well, this is the big question. And, and it's the, the kind of major theme that uh, people have been exploring ever since we sort of figured out that these bones came from things like hyenas and lions and bears. Uh, where did they go to? Uh, and there's been really a lot of um, work done over the past century and a half to try and get a handle on this question. Um, and at the moment, there's there's sort of two quite uh, different camps that, that have kind of sprung up. So there's there's a a group that really kind of puts this down to climate change. We know that the, the Pleistocene itself was a very dynamic period, that you had uh, times when it was 
very incredibly cold, like frigid kind of glacial deserts in parts of, of uh, Eurasia, and times when it was kind of moderate temperatures and climate like it is today. Uh, and it switched between these kind of two phases um, in time periods called glacials and interglacials. Um, and so climate has been one of the things that people have uh, sort of tapped onto as something that was changing uh, and possibly could have had a, an effect on, on these species. And, and definitely, I don't think anyone would disagree that, that changing climate has a big effect on, on, on species that live in, in the wild. Um, but the other camp, the, the one that I'm in myself, is the idea that modern humans, our species, as we kind of travel out of Africa, encountering um, these naive, large animals, um, we basically hunted them, destroyed their habitats, uh, and other kind of put other kinds of pressures on them that meant that they they were driven to extinction uh, directly and indirectly by by human causes. What evidence do we have of human influence in these extinctions? Uh, well, <laughs> lots. I mean. What, what's important to realize is that these extinctions happened, uh, well, different species went extinct at different times, uh, but the, the kind of window of overlap it varies between uh, different species. So for some, there's you know thousands of years of overlap between humans uh, and, for instance, mammoths. And for others, there's very little, for instance, you know, humans and ground sloths. So we can be talking about a time period between humans arriving and extinction that's only a couple of hundred years. And then, you know, 15,000 years later, we're trying to find evidence of, of this very short time period um, when when humans and, and extinct animals are interacting. But we do have a lot. So um, if we look at one example, say the cave bear. So the cave bear was a relative of the brown bear, much bigger, about a ton. So, so this animals that have been hunted um, by humans uh, and then processed and the kind of bone refuse left behind still had evidence of the hunting in them. Uh, a really interesting site is uh, Montespan in France where they have found inside a cave what seems to be a, a kind of clay effigy of, of a cave bear which has uh, holes in it like you would get if you kind of poked a big pointy stick into it um, and it had a skull there in front suggesting that it had been covered in um, the kind of skin and head of a bear and been used as essentially target practice. Um, so we, we have some really quite, quite uh, suggestive evidence that, that hunting of, of uh, most of these species was something that was occurring. Right. And um, one of the species that we quite clearly hunted um, is the mammoth. And that's one of the sort of like typical examples of Ice, ice Age mammals. Yes, definitely. So ma- mammoths, we overlap with quite a quite a long time period. So mammoths uh, went extinct in sort of mainland North America, mainland Eurasia, uh, about 14,000 years ago. Um, and that is, you know, nearly 50,000 years of overlap with, with modern humans. Um, but what's interesting about mammoths is we, we have a lot of evidence for their hunting, but we also have evidence of them surviving in really isolated um, habitats. So there's an island just north of Siberia called Wrangell Island, where we think the very last mammoths on Earth lived. So they were around until about 4,500 years ago. So 10,000 years after they went extinct in mainland Eurasia, they were surviving on this small, it's only about 100 kilometers square island. Um, so you know, this kind of very much ties into the idea that humans are, are a major factor in their extinction. So you know, Randall Island's only about you know, 80 kilometers away from, from the mainland Eurasian coast. Yet these animals survived for 10,000 years here and we only see them uh, disappearing from the fossil record at about the time that we have archaeological evidence for humans arriving on the island. 
which is, is very strongly suggested to me that uh, they would have been fine if humans weren't around. Um, and, you know, like with the cave bear as well, we have lots of evidence of of hunting of mammoths. We have you know lots of bones that have been um, processed by humans have cut marks and things on them. We have bones that still have uh, bits of flint stuck in them from when they were hunted. We have uh, shoulder blades with with holes kind of punched through them, which were obviously uh, done by by spears. Um, we have cave art, which sort of is suggestive of uh, arrows and spears kind of sticking out of mammoths that where they've been drawn. Um, you know, all all these kind of really, it's all kind of circumstantial, but it, it builds up to very clear evidence that humans were were uh, targeting mammoths and, and hunting them quite quite uh, heavily. But we didn't just hunt them for meat, did we? No, no. So I mean, mammoths were were everything uh, for for humans, especially in, in the kind of northern. Uh, latitudes where you have very difficult terrain to live in if you're if you're a, a human um, but for mammoths they got meat of course uh, but also uh, ivory i mean ivory when you don't have much wood or, or a tree around to work with ivory is a fantastic resource uh, and we know that mammoth ivory is, is one of the uh, the kind of key um products of the, of the ice age that people were using they were trading it they were uh, using it to sculpt um using it to sculpt sculptures. So we have kind of evidence of them whittling it, essentially. They were using it to make uh, more spear points. So you have the kind of ironic case of mammoths being hunted by the, the remains of other hunted mammoths. Um, we don't have very much evidence for what they were using their skin and fur for, but obviously that would have been used too. So I, I think mammoths were essentially, you know, everything was used, nothing was wasted with them. Um, they, they were they were essential to to the kind of ice age economy. And interestingly, you you should uh, you brought up the uh, weapons that we use. So can can you just give a bit of a brief explanation of what sort of weaponry um, that our ancient ancestors would have used? Yeah, well, these are really kind of quite sophisticated tools. I mean, this is these are modern people. These are people just like us that are, that are uh, making these. And so um, you know, different tools have been used in in different situations. But but one of the the uh, most interesting um, tools is kind of the the hunting spear that, that we have evidence of uh, as a kind of modular instrument. So it's not just um, a stick and a bit of stone at the end that's pointy. You have you know very carefully, uh, skillfully um, created uh, cutting points from flint or whatever, um, or ivory or whatever tool it is they're using for the cutting point. But then you also have um, a kind of modular part, so a, a, a bit that can be swapped out that the, the stone or ivory point attaches to. And this can be made of wood, it can be made of woolly rhino horn, it can be made of bone. Uh, and what it does is you have that attached to what is your kind of throwing part, the, the uh, long spear part. Um, and what this means is that when you're hunting, you can easily kind of swap out the, the business end uh, which is more often likely to get damaged and replace it quickly with a new one, which is important when you're hunting, you know, four tons of mammoth. And then as well as this, you have the technology of things like uh, the atlatl, which is um, basically a range extender. It's just a small bit of ivory or wood or um, whatever, which has a, extends the reach of your arm. It's like those um, ball throwers that, that you see dog walkers use where they kind of put the ball on the end and then they can flick it um, for the, for the butt for the dog to catch. Uh, and it's exactly the same kind of physics going on, except instead of a, a kind of bouncy ball, you, you have your spear attached to that. And it enables you to throw it much faster, uh, much more accurately with more power. 
uh, enough power to kind of puncture you know, uh, through a, a, a mammoth skin. So one of the other um, sort of animals you'd have expected to see in the Ice Age is the saber-toothed cat. Um, mm-hmm. How much did we interact with those? Uh, well, we have a, a reasonable amount of interaction evidence from them. Um, so saber-toothed cats are, are my favourite um, extinct species and one that I've worked the most on in my kind of professional uh, life. Um, but really, it's a bit of a mystery. So the, the saber-toothed cat we had in Europe, which is called Homotherium, um, it is very rare in the fossil record. So um, there's a huge kind of gap between when we have uh, reasonable numbers of fossils from them about 300,000 years ago to the very last fossils we have of them, uh, which are only about 30,000 years old. So the, the, that big gap, there's nothing kind of going on, which is annoying because that's when we have modern humans come into Europe. Uh, and so we have a kind of big gap where we'd expect to find evidence of interaction between saber-toothed and modern humans. Uh, but if we go back to the, the kind of 300,000-year-old stuff, um, there's the site in Germany called Schoningen, uh, which has given like, some amazing uh, artifacts from, from early humans. And these aren't our species, but a closely related uh, hominid species. But there we see um, them using kind of big spears and quite uh, complicated uh, flint tools but we also have bones and teeth of saber-toothed there. And, and weirdly, it looks like some of the bones have been used to make stuff. So they've, they've kind of modified the bones of the saber-toothed cat um, 300,000 years ago and used it for uh, napping uh, flint tools. So they use it as like a basically a hammer uh, when they're making their, their, their flint spear points. So, yeah, that, that kind of tells you something, that these guys were with saber-toothed cats. They were around. They knew of them. Uh, but they were happy enough to use their bones as, as tools. What surprised me was how much we could learn about these saber-toothed cats from cave art. Yeah, well, I mean, with saber-toothed cats, we've only really got one example which could be um, a, a saber-tooth. This is the uh, statuette from Isterits in, uh, in France. Um, so we don't really have very much at all uh, cave art evidence of, of saber-toothed cats, but some of the other cats that were around at the time, things like the cave lion, we have an awful lot of art. Of, of them. Uh, and we can learn stuff about how cave lions lived because um, the people that were drawing them, you know, understood them intimately. They were they were sharing the landscape with them. And so with the cave lion, uh, we know that they lived in prides like modern lions do. Uh, and we also know that the the, the males, so the, the male cave lions, um, didn't have a mane, which is kind of quite unusual um, when we kind of so much associate modern lion males with having a big kind of bouffant ma- uh, mane. But the cave lines didn't seem to have that. So, you know, cave art is a really fantastic resource for getting an idea of what these uh, extinct species looked like and lived like when they were around. And cave lines, we know also a bit about what they look like from mummified uh, examples, don't we? There's the little baby cave lion that was found in, in ice. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So, I mean, we've, we've been one of the, the few upsides of. Uh, global climate change at the moment is that uh, we have a lot of melting permafrost in uh, Siberia, which is kind of spewing up some really fantastic finds. So uh, we've kind of had an embarrassment of riches of cave lions after having no mummified remains of cave lions in all of recorded history. In the past couple of years, we've had four that have popped up. So two um, sets of cubs popped up uh, near the Uyandaya, Uyandina River, in Siberia a couple of years back. And then just last year, uh, another two cave lion cubs um, popped up called Boris and Spartak. 
Um, so we've now got four really well-preserved cave lion cubs um, from the permafrost regions, which are being studied at the moment. Have we managed to learn anything from those just yet? Uh, well, we I guess we, we know a couple of things. We know that uh, litters were of at least two individuals, which is good to know. Um, they, they seem to have followed the same kind of uh, uh, developmental patterns as modern lions. So we that the cubs that have been found have the same um, kind of teeth that the cubs have at the same time period, approximately. Um, but yeah, I think they're they're kind of being studied quite intensely at the minute. So we haven't really heard much about what they've been found, what what's been found about them. Yeah, and something else that interested me about the cave lions was um, the Leuvenmensch, the little um, sculpture lion man. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, I mean it, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible uh, artifact and there's really nothing else like it um, from the Pleistocene. It's yeah, it, it shows kind of how important cave lions were to the people that lived with them at the time period. So the, the lower mench is um, made of mammoth ivory, made of one bit of tusk of, of a mammoth. It's from uh, a cave called Holofels in Germany. Um, and it's been put together from like 700 tiny little fragments for, for kind of slotted back together like the, the most difficult three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle you can ever imagine. Um, <laughs> and it has the head of a cave lion really uh, incredibly done. I mean, it has a lot of character. It's got a slight smile. The ears kind of stick up like they like they do in, in uh, lions. They're, you can see it, it, it's a very clear depiction of, of, of a cave lion, but its body is the body of a person. So it has, it has arms at its side, it's standing on two feet. It looks like the person with uh, the head of a cave lion. I mean, what, what does this mean? I mean, obviously it means something. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have spent the hundreds of hours it must have taken to carve it uh, out of mammoth ivory. But it's a real mystery. I mean, it's uh, it, it's kind of evidence of you know, spirituality or, or some kind of uh, cultural resonance for the cave lion at this time period. But we can only really speculate what it meant. I mean, it meant something, but it's it's kind of a... A kind of flight of imagination um, captured in, in ivory, and we just had to kind of take it as it is, really. As you mentioned earlier, um, Britain used to be home to hyenas, um, in particular cave hyenas. Um, what are these like in comparison to you know modern spotted hyenas? Yeah, well, they're they're pretty much exactly the same. So a little bit bigger. Um, they're they're part of the same species as the modern spotted hyena, and, and spotted hyenas themselves are, are kind of amazing carnivores. They're have really complex social lives. They're they're very very good at hunting, um, and they have you know one of the strongest bites in the animal kingdom. They can crunch bone no problem, digest it, uh, and excrete it at the other end. Uh, and the cave hyena that lived in Britain was part of the same species as the spotted hyena. And so we we see evidence in some of the cave sites from Britain, places like uh, Kent's Cavern, Kirkdale Cave, uh, hyenas living in pretty much the same kind of way that they do in Africa today. So uh, in groups, um, chewing lots of bone, uh, sca scavenging when they can, uh, but also hunting as well. Uh, and so we see them you know, as part of the British landscape from the, the evidence of the fossils they left behind. So have we been able to learn about cave hyenas and how they might have lived from looking at how modern hyenas live? Well, I think there'd probably be a very good um, you know, reference point. So, I mean, people have looked at the genetics of cave hyenas. They've, they've kind of uh, extracted DNA from the bones of hyenas, even hyenas from Britain, uh, and looked at how they relate to uh, modern populations 
uh, in various countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so we can see that there's uh, a clear, close relationship. And so apart from them possibly being slightly bigger on average than the hyenas that we have around today, uh, all evidence points to them being essentially the same species. And the person who discovered cave hyenas, William Buckland, he sounded like quite a character. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's you know one of the most colourful uh, scientists of the 19th century, I think. You know, you only have to take a little bit into his kind of backstory to see how interesting a character he must have been with all his kind of weird uh, manias for you know eating animals and for uh, collecting um, things like that. And also his his contribution was huge. I mean, he he was as well as being, you know, a bit of a figure of fun. He was a, a serious scientist that, that really contributed to our understanding of the past. Um, the idea that, that uh, these animals, things like hyenas and mammoths, had lived and breathed in, uh, in Europe during the distant past, that was all pretty much down to him. Um, and so, yeah, he, he's, he's one of my favourite characters from the, the history of science just because he is so colourful and has... Um, had so many adventures, essentially. Um, there was the particularly fun story about the um, the saint's blood in the cathedral. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he was one of the first people to to look at archaeology uh, and paleontology as, uh, practical, um, as a practical science. And so he was very much into the idea of testing uh, your assumptions. And so he did this when looking at bones of hyenas from Kirkdale Cave in Yorkshire. So he... Um, fed some cow bones to a hyena from a traveling menagerie to see how it processed them and was able to match the kind of uh, gnawing that, that happened on, on the bones to the, the gnawing that he found in the fossils. And so he's very much about testing his ideas. And so uh, this uh, fun story is that he was on a tour around, I think it was Italy, um, somewhere, a, a cathedral that had uh, a kind of miraculous saint's blood stain on the floor. Uh, and being the practical man that he was, he just got down on all fours and had a taste of it. Uh, and was able, through his uh, expansive knowledge of these kind of things, to say that it was actually bat urine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it just showed you that you should always, uh, always um, try and test your ideas before taking them as gospel. I think one thing that we often don't appreciate was just how difficult it was to make the leap for people like William Buckland to make the leap to understanding that there were species that had previously existed that have since gone extinct. Yeah, I mean, extinction is a real um, difficult concept to to grasp, really, if, if you've not been exposed to it before. The idea that uh, animals were different in the past, that some things that were around then aren't around anymore. And uh, so Buckland himself, he was a, a theologian. He, he studied uh, the Bible. He was a, a reverend, um, as were many of the, the kind of giants of, of 19th century uh, geology and paleontology. And so... I mean, I think it, it kind of makes it even more impressive that they were able to um, put aside their um, theological training, uh, the ideas of you know Noah's floods and uh, uh, the the um, scala natura, all, all these kind of ideas about nature that they've got from biblical study, to put that to one side and look just at the evidence in the caves, in the ground, in the fossils. Um, I think that that says a lot about the, the kind of intellectual honesty of, of um, of these people at that time. One animal that I think people would be a little less surprised to learn about having lived in Britain is the Irish elk or the shelk. Sounds like quite a, a magnificent creature. Could you tell us yes. a bit about what that was? Yeah, I mean, the, the Irish elk is something else, really. Um, it's 
it's just the most deer-like of deer. If you've ever seen a skeleton, and there's there's lots of them around, um, they're just fantastically impressive and, and arresting sights. So, I mean, there's there's a, a really nice mount in the uh, the main hall in Edinburgh Museum. Uh, they're they're common enough that most large museums have them, and they're the largest deer that ever lived. So they're you know a good seven or eight feet tall uh, uh, up to the the top of the head. They you know, bigger than moose, which is the biggest deer that's around today. And they have these kind of 12 foot uh, anchor uh, antler spans. So they have six foot on one side and six foot on the other of antler. And it's it's not really like any of the antlers around today. It's a bit moose-like, a bit fallow deer-like. It's uh, broad and palmate, so it's quite thick. It, it has only a few tines that kind of stick off um, from the main broad palmate parts. Um, and it would have been an uh, absolutely fantastic creature to see uh, in the flesh. I mean, it's just so stately, so you know, elegant. You, you get that impression just from looking at the bones. Um, so it must have been an incredible creature. So why was it called the Irish elk? Well, it's kind of an accident of um, of the fossilization process, really. So um, it was first positively identified from uh, underneath uh, peat bogs in Ireland. So. Underneath many peat bogs, you have a, a kind of clay layer, this kind of marly, uh, sticky uh, clay, which dates back to the last ice age, back to the Pleistocene. And this is where a lot of the bones of Irish elk have been found. And of course, um, peat is a, a fuel source for many people, has been in the past, still is today. Uh, and so peat cutters uh, working down to the bottom of, um, of the peat bogs would occasionally pick up the skulls of these incredible creatures, which were clearly not like anything around in the Irish landscape or even the European landscape because they were extinct. Uh, and so even going back to, you know, this, the 17th century and earlier, people were recognising these as, as interesting things that could should be dug up and, uh, and uh, well, they had some kind of value. So they were hung in houses, they were put to some quite alternative uses. So they're, they're so big and so sturdy that people used them to uh, pen in sheep, used them as kind of makeshift gates or as small bridges across little, little streams. Um, so yeah, they're they're really impressive uh, skulls that they have, and, and this has continued till today. So um, occasionally, uh, the the, the um, some of the older antler sets kind of come onto the auction houses and sell for fantastic sums, just because they're they're such impressive uh, specimens. So in Britain, um, you wouldn't be surprised to be travelling through the countryside and see uh, herds of cows around. Um, and they're quite they're quite docile. They're big, but they don't really do much. But it sounds like their ancestors, the aurochs, weren't much like that at all. No, I mean I, I, I'm still always very wary of cows. I mean they they have <laughs> they're supposed to be docile, but they you know they do kill people. Um, we always underestimate what we're familiar with, and uh, yeah, I would don't let your guard down around cows because. Uh, <laughs> They can turn in an instant, but definitely with the aurochs, it's another level entirely. So the aurochs is the, the kind of uh, ancestor of the cow in the same way that uh, the wolf is the ancestor of the dog and the wild boar is the ancestor of the, the domestic pig. Uh, cows have come from aurochs and these were big, big animals. They were uh, bigger than mo- any modern cow that's around today. They had you know enormous uh, horns, like almost... Uh, mammoth tusk-sized horns, and they had a, a really bad reputation. So they survived until really late. They, they didn't go extinct during the Ice Age. They went extinct uh, in the 17th century. I mean, they were around until modern times. And so we have a lot of literate um, written evidence of what these animals were like. We have some of the, the words of Julius Caesar himself from his uh, 
writings on the conquest of Gaul, he, he talks about them as being you know, these fearsome beasts, uh, the size of an elephant that, that will hunt you down if they, if they even see you. Um, we have kind of later uh, evidence as well from when they were confined to only a few places um, and looked after as essentially uh, a kind of conservation hunting ground mix um, where they could be hunted by royalty at the time. Uh, and so we have a lot of sources about what the animal was like, a lot of written sources. And yeah, it, was, it sounds pretty terrifying. Um, I, I kind of, you can imagine, you know, the, the reputation that bulls have today. Imagine something twice the size of a bull and even more angry. And that's basically what a, a bull aurochs could be like. So how did the aurochs sort of influence human culture? Uh, well, in lots of ways. I mean, um, one of the, the kind of standout uh, cultural artefacts we have from Western Europe, from the, the kind of Iron Age, is something called the, the Gundestrup Cauldron, which was discovered uh, under a peat bog in uh, Jutland in Denmark. And so this is a, a silver cauldron, which has a whole bunch of uh, carvings on the outside, which are religious, possibly in nature, have uh, some really quite bizarre scenes on them, things like uh, giants dipping people headfirst into, into cauldrons, um, men with antlers on their head, like horned gods, uh, people playing the, the carrying this kind of uh, Iron Age war horn. But it also has on the inside uh, the image of a hunted aurochs, uh, carved, in, well, sculpted out of silver in sort of three dimensions. Um, and it's, it's a really amazing image, uh, which shows that these animals, as ferocious as they were, were hunted by people. Uh, and then going further back, you have lots of it, uh, art of aurochs in cave sites. So the Alaska, you know, one of the most famous cave sites in France, has lots of aurochs bulls on the walls. Uh, Chauvet Cave has them as well. And so all the way through, you, you have aurochs as one of the most impressive animals in the uh, European fauna, uh, which drew the attention of people that lived beside them. And you can sort of argue that um, the aurochs played a big role in human civilization itself is that right yeah definitely i mean we we somehow had the idea that um these animals could be taken in and tamed and domesticated i mean it's a, it's a huge leap from uh you know julius caesar descri describing aurochs as you know the size of an elephant and that will hunt you down and kill you to taking them into kind of close, close proximity to human habitation as was done in the middle east about 12 to fourteen thousand years ago to domesticate them um, and just the idea of domestication is really a mind bender. The idea that you could take these enormously dangerous animals and uh, contain them so that you can breed them together, uh, milk them essentially as well, um, and have them nearby so that it's less danger for you. So all of these animals um, have gone extinct, arguably because of human influence. So what can we learn for the present time when extinctions are once again a big threat to our ecosystem? Yeah, well, I think the, what I try and emphasise, what I try to, to do with the book is just to show that you know, extinction is not something that just happened in the past. It's not something that you can uh, box in with the dinosaurs, something that happens naturally. Most extinctions over the past 100,000 years, I would say, are down to human influence. Um, um, if we don't learn from that, from that kind of very stark fact, then things are going to get pretty bad for us. Um, and yeah, just I mean, the, the kind of idea that 
we, if we're not careful, if we don't emphasize the need for conservation and for uh, a kind of better relationship with the natural world, then we're going to lose a lot more. Um, and it's happening, you know, it's happening now. We, we can look at things like the tiger, which has had, you know, million upon millions of, of dollars thrown at it as a conservation problem. And yet still, of the eight subspecies of tiger, three of them have gone extinct in the past century. So the, the tiger that lived on Bali, the tiger that lived on uh, on Java, and the tiger that lived around the Caspian Sea, they've all disappeared despite the massive conservation effort that's gone into uh, protecting tigers. And it's global, this idea that things are, are disappearing. Um, you know, they're suffering deaths by a thousand cuts all over the place. Even in Britain, our own wildcats, the, the largest uh, cat that survived in Britain in small pockets in the, in the Scottish Highlands, it's disappearing. It's uh, It's got nowhere to live. It's interbreeding with domestic cats that have gone feral. And, and there have been a few success stories. We have kind of brought back the beaver. That's kind of the only positive story I can think of in terms of British conservation in the past um, decade or so. Um, but that's really only a start. We need to kind of be firmer and, and push uh, harder to, to kind of undo some of the damage that's been done to recover some of the biodiversity, some of the um, natural uh, world that we've, we've kind of exterminated from, from, uh, from here. So if we could bring back these Pleistocene species like the woolly mammoth, would you? Well, that's a really great question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, obviously, the idea of bringing back woolly mammoths has a lot of uh, cultural kind of resonance in a place where Jurassic Park and Jurassic World are, are kind of box office uh, hits. It's not going to happen for, for a long time. I mean, I've been involved with ancient DNA as, as a professional scientist for 15 years, looking at the genetics of extinct species. Uh, and it's, it's a question that gets asked a lot, but we're, we're a long, long way away from ever resurrecting things like mammoths or cave lions or any of these other extinct species. But even then, I, I, would, I would be very reticent to say yes to the idea that they should be brought back. Um, I think, you know, mammoths, like elephants, are, are complex creatures. They have their own social life. They have their own culture, essentially. And at the moment, we're struggling to protect elephants, the, the species that's around today. So African elephants are in real trouble. Asian elephants, the same. Uh, where, would we, where would we put mammoths? Would you be happy to have them back in Siberia? Do you think the, the residents of uh, Novosibirsk or Vladivostok would be happy to have four tons of elephant in their backyard. I mean, there, there's all these kind of questions that have to be, be looked at. Um, and yes, I think ultimately responsibility for the extinction uh, is down to us, but whether bringing them back would, would absolve that guilt, I don't know, I don't know. So of all the Pleistocene species that have gone extinct, uh, which is your favorite? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> I would say, I mean, there's, diff there's different kinds of favourites. I would say that the saber-toothed homotherium is one of my favourites just because um, it's such an incredible animal. I mean, it's uh, there's hardly words to describe it. It's a, you know, a lion-sized predator, uh, short-tailed, hugely muscular forearms. Uh, every single tooth in its mouth is serrated like a shark. Um, it was probably a, a kind of pursuit ambush predator, 
uh, it would have been absolutely terrifying. I, you know, I wouldn't want to live with it, but I would like to have been able to have seen it. Um, but I think also, you know, things like the Irish Elk, I mean, they would have been just incredible to see just the, the, this enormous deer with, uh, you know, bridge spanning antlers. Um, you know, all of them have their own, uh, all of them have their own kind of unique selling points. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would love to kind of pop back to the places to have seen how they, how they lived and how they interacted with the environment back then. Um, but yes, I don't know all of them, any of them, uh, saber tooths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was Ross Barnett, whose book The Missing Links is out now. Subscribe to our podcast if you don't already, and next week you'll be able to listen to geneticist and BBC Radio 4 presenter Adam Rutherford explain how to argue with a racist, using science, obviously. Don't forget, if you're struggling to keep up with these New Year resolutions, the latest issue of BBC Science Focus shows you how you can supercharge your willpower. Of course, there's loads more inside, so pick up a copy at your local newsagent or supermarket. Or better still, subscribe and get it delivered to your door. Find out more at sciencefocus.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.